please hear me on this. Based on the authority of God's word, Jesus fulfilled them all. And his resurrection is proof. Thanks for tuning in to the Putnam City Baptist Church podcast. We hope this message encourages you wherever you might be. If you'd like to learn more about PCBC, visit us online at pcbc.tv. What would Jesus say to this past week, uh, came in the pastor's office, I think it was Tuesday, I'd watched a video of Oprah Winfrey interviewing a prominent pastor, and she asked the question, do you have to be a Christian to have a relationship with God? I was really disappointed in the answer that she received. So I did a little investigating. I started looking at other videos. And what I've discovered is that this is a question that she's asked numerous times uh, over the past few decades in her talk show, on uh, podcasts, and on radio interviews. She's asking in a lot of different forms and fashion. So I started doing a little investigating in her life. And what I realized is that she had a really tough beginning. She had a hard start. She came from nothing, and, and man, she's become how you and I, probably all of us, know to be extremely blessed in a worldly sense. She's achieved a lot. She's given a lot. She's made a lot. Here's a little snapshot of her upbringing as well as her success. Oprah was born into poverty in rural Mississippi to a teenage single mother and later raised in inner city Milwaukee. She has stated that she was molested during her childhood and early teens by close family members and became pregnant at the age of 14. Her son was born prematurely and died in infancy. Uh, Oprah was then sent to live with the man she calls her father, Vernon Winfrey, a barber in Tennessee. Now, important to know that she calls this gentleman her father, but she really doesn't know who her father is. There was some challenge with the DNA and all of that. So ultimately, she doesn't really know who her father is, but she claims that Vernon, Vernon Winfrey is her biological father. Uh, while there, she landed a job in radio while she was still in high school, and she aspired uh, to work on TV. However, people that she worked with said while she was a pleasant person, she would never make it in front of a camera. Nevertheless, her persistence would not let her give up on her dream, and by the age of 19, she was a co-anchor for the local evening news. Winfrey's often emotional, extemporaneous delivery eventually led her to transfer to the daytime talk show arena. After boosting a third-rated local Chicago talk show to first place, she launched her own Oprah Winfrey Network uh, her own production company, and became internationally syndicated. Fast forward. In 2011, she was dubbed the queen of all media. She was the richest black person in the 20th century and North America's first black multi-billionaire. And that's spelled with a B, by the way, billionaire. And she has been ranked the greatest black philanthropist in American history, and by 2007, she was ranked the most influential woman in the entire world. Yet, over and over and over again, she still struggles with this idea that all roads lead to heaven. One of the interviews I watched, 
she was talking about a book that she had just read, and she was quoting the author of the book, and she said, there are millions of pathways to God. And upon her saying that, a woman in the crowd extemporaneously shouted out, what about Jesus? And her response, a loving and gentle response, was, what about Jesus? And then she went on to talk about how Jesus was just one of many ways that people could reach God. And she went on to clarify that statement by saying, whatever you believe works for you. And whatever you believe or you believe or those joining us around the world on the internet, whatever you believe works for you. So what would Jesus say to Oprah today? I believe he'd say the same thing to Oprah that he would say to the church and to the world and to everybody that's lived or ever would live. And you say, what do you mean to the church? Dr. Robert Jeffries, pastor of First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas, a handful of years ago, published a book called Not All Roads Lead to Heaven. And in his discovery, in his research, he discovered that almost 60% of those that attend American evangelical churches, which would be a church like ours, that almost 60% of those believe that there are multiple roads to heaven. That means that in our church, more than 5 out of 10 people sitting in here today believe you can get to heaven other than through Jesus Christ. What that would mean based on the authority of God's word, if that statistic is true in these numbers that half present today, if the rapture happened, would bust hell wide open. So what would the Lord Jesus say to Oprah? I believe he'd say the same thing to her that he would say to you and me. And the greatest prayer of the Bible, according to John Piper, gives us insight into what he would say. Turn with me if you would. Mark chapter 14, this is the prayer of Gethsemane. While it is recorded in all Gospels, we're going to specifically look at what Mark includes in his chapter 14, the Gospel of Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. And as we unpack this passage, we will clearly understand what Jesus would say to Oprah and to you and me. Starting in verse 32, here's how it reads in the New American Standard Bible. They came to a place named Gethsemane. Let me pause there for a moment and give some context. It says, they came to a place. Who is they? If we back up a little bit in this passage, in the passage preceding it, what we'll learn is that Jesus is there with his disciples at the Last Supper. So he's approaching his arrest. If you want a a little homework assignment, look up, Google, bless you, find out what Maundy Thursday is, M-A-U-N-D-Y Thursday, Maundy Thursday is when this took place, it's the day before his crucifixion. So what we find on Maundy Thursday, he's there at the Last Supper, and at the Last Supper he's really teaching them what it means to love one another by serving people so much that they would do the most menial task in that day, and that was wash somebody's feet. Then he says, hey, you're getting ready to be dispersed. You're going to all, you know, run astray. And Peter says, not me, not me, not me, not me. And he says, yes, you, yes, you, yes, you. And then all of a sudden, he tells Judas, whatever you do, you go and do now. 
So Judas leaves. So when it says they, it's referring to the 11 disciples. So it'd be 12 minus Judas. So it's the 11 disciples. They head to the Garden of Gethsemane. Why? Let's read. And he said to his disciples, that would be the 11 minus Judas. He's not there. Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground. And began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying so that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your holy word. Your word that's true from cover to cover. 100% true in its message to us today. I pray your Holy Spirit would have freedom to reign in each one of our hearts and teach us exactly what you would have us have from this passage today. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Three discoveries we see in this passage. Three things that we'll discover that I'm convinced would help us understand what he would say to Oprah and what he would say to anyone and everyone else. The first discovery in this passage is Jesus' perspective on the cross. Jesus' perspective concerning the cross that is before him. Remember, he's getting ready to be arrested. Then he's getting ready to be beaten, severely flogged, hanged on a cross where he'll die for the sins of the world. So what we get as he walks into Gethsemane and begins praying is his perspective, what he thinks about there being only one way to heaven. What does he think? Let's read. Look in verse 32 and following. There came a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, that's the 11 minus Judas, sit here until I have prayed. Here we go. Look. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. L let me explain the picture real quick before we finish the verse. So here's Jesus. They're leaving from the home where they had the Last Supper. And he takes the 11, and eight of them, he says, if you'll hang out right here. Just a little bit further, he goes with Peter, James, and John. So he leaves three here in about a stone's throw. He goes and prepares to pray. And it says when he approaches here, it said he's very distressed and troubled. And when we continue to read, I believe it's verse 34, it says, he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Fifty years I've lived and I've experienced challenge. And I know that you've had challenge as well, regardless of your age or stage of life. Jesus told us it would come. 
John 16 and 17, he very clearly says that in this life you will have trouble. He promises to give us peace, but he does not promise to remove us from the troubles of life. In the fallen world, sin-sick world, trouble is trouble, and it's around many corners when we turn. I remember one of the most painful times of my life was about eight years ago. A couple weeks ago was the eight-year anniversary that my mother died of cancer at 69 years of age. A year prior to my mother dying, my father-in-law, probably the most influential man in my entire life, my father-in-law died. About a year after my mother died, my mother-in-law, the three most influential people in my life, they all died, bam, bam, bam. And I'll just be honest. I went through a season where I felt like somebody had punched me in my gut several times, just continued to punch me in my gut. It was one thing after another, and life continued to come at warp speed, and it hurt. But perhaps you're here today, and you've got things going on in your life that you can't fully explain. Let me say that Jesus can identify with you. He really can, so hang in there as the message progresses. He really can identify with you, even more so. As bad as the pain was, I do have to confess, I was not troubled in my spirit to the point of death. At no point did I think I was going to take my life. But it says that he was grieved. He was stricken with grief, deeply grieved, even to the point of death. So what was going on here? What, what perspective, this perspective that captured him so that he felt that it might even better, be better if he were dead. What was going on in the life of the Lord Jesus? Ironically enough, I ran across a blog this week of Kathy Lee Gifford. And evidently she spent some time with a messianic rabbi. Kathy claims to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and believes he's the only way to heaven. And she spent a season with a messianic rabbi. That's a Jewish rabbi who would know the Jewish scriptures inside and out. Who believes that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies concerning Messiah. That Jesus truly is Messiah. And as she was studying with the rabbi, he pointed out how important this prayer was for us to understand the magnitude of the cross. And he pointed out to her, and so I communicate to you, what he was grieving so much about had very little to do with the fact that he was getting ready to be beaten beyond recognition. She wrote in her blog, literally, that he was grieving, grieving over the fact that he was getting ready to take our sin upon himself. What brilliant insight she shared. Think about it, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 21. The one who knew no sin became sin. He didn't sin. It said he became sin that we might have the righteousness of God. So this perspective, this grief-stricken perspective, what he was concerned about was he was moments away from taking your sin upon himself, from taking my sin upon himself. And you say, what's significant about that? Wow, there's so much. We could talk about it for weeks. But let me give you a little glimpse into what it is. What's significant is, is that even before creation existed, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they were in perfect fellowship with one another. And when they created the world, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as co-creators, they created the world. They didn't create us because they needed us, but as they created us, they desired that there would be at least one in creation, the human race, that would worship 
him and adore him, that we could be in relationship with him. So the Father's known perfect fellowship with the Son and the Spirit, but Jesus, his eyes are illumined as a human to the fact that he's getting ready to take on the sin of the world, and he knew the scripture to be true. He knew what Paul would later write in Romans 6 and 23, for the wages of sin is, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Only one way. The gift of God is eternal life because we need it. Because when sin entered the world, death entered through it, and all who were born were born dead in their trespasses. Romans 3 and 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you and I are born dead in our trespasses. And the only way that our sins could be forgiven if there's a perfect sacrifice. And there's but one that is perfect, and his name is Jesus. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, that he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. So he's the ultimate sacrifice. John referred to him in John 1 and 29 as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. What does that really mean? Lamb of God means that it was the sacrifice that was spotless and without blemish. It means that he had never offended the Father in his words or in his actions, and he never failed to do anything the Father willed for him to do. He was absolutely perfect. He was not born of man like you and me. He was born of the Father who supernaturally touched a virgin named Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, born here on earth as a human, as the Son of God, and God the Son. Lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and raised from the dead. He knew what he was getting ready to do. And if we were to fast forward a chapter, we hear him scream out words from the cross as he's paying for sins. And he says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, showing that the father had turned his back on the son and broken an eternal fellowship, the entire world went dark for a period of hours while Jesus paid for your sin and for mine. So as Jesus looked toward the cross, it moved him deeply. So he was distressed and troubled. So much so, not now, but it later, homework, flip over to Luke chapter 22 and read Luke's account. What Luke tells us in this moment of grief that he literally sweated great drops of blood. You say, is that possible? Is it possible to sweat blood? T.W. Hunt in his book, The Mind of Christ, writes, When we are in trauma, the capillaries in the sweat glands just under the surface of the skin dilate. This is actually what causes us to blush. What, what's going on in our body at this time is why we turn red. Uh, Hunt goes on to write, If the stress is intense enough... The blood vessels pressing against the sweat glands burst. The blood has nowhere to go except through the sweat glands and the person sweats blood. This is a rare phenomenon and it has been observed by modern doctors. The medical name for it is hematidrosis. So Jesus experienced this rare moment where the anguish would be so deep that he would literally drop he would sweat great drops of blood. Why? Because he was getting ready to take your sin and my sin. And he knew what this would do. It would cut off fellowship between him and the Father. And he had always known perfect union as a part of the Trinity. So the first discovery is his perspective concerning the cross. The second discovery we see in the passage is his prayer concerning the cross. 
So what did he actually pray that might help us understand what he would say to Oprah as well as the world today? In verses 35 and 36, let's listen to his prayer. And Jesus went a little beyond them, fell to the ground. Notice the posture of his prayer. We'll come back to that. He fell to the ground and began to pray, if it be possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, notice his position in prayer too. It says he was saying, Abba, Father, a lot of significance in that uh, title there. All things are possible for you. You can do everything. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So, so what's going on here? If you look at Jesus' prayers all through the Bible, typically he prayed like most rabbis prayed, and that was a posture like this. They would look up to heaven, leave their eyes open, gazing into the glory of all of his creation, and they would pray to the Father. But it literally says, concerning his prayer here in Gethsemane, it says that he fell to the ground. So his posture would be prostrate. He, he was laid out because of what he was going through and what he was getting ready to go through. It was in a pleading position, a begging position position because of he knew he knew what he was getting ready to expect notice not only his posture but the position he took he came to the father as a son and you say what do you mean he came to the father as a son this is the only place where we see Jesus crying out Abba father you say why is that significant well in the Greek language the word Abba if we translate it to the English language the closest translation we can get is daddy which is one of the most endearing terms that a child would call his or her father. When we come and sit before our father's feet or in his lap or in his presence and we say, Daddy. It's a little different than coming in and saying, Hey, Dad, or Pops, or whatever. It's an endearing term. And this is the only place where we see Jesus crying out, Daddy, Daddy. And what does he deliver in his prayer? He says all things are possible. He establishes, just like we should, praise when we come before the Father. We should acknowledge who He is. He's the God that has created everything that is seen and unseen. There's nothing too great for you. And then He lays it before the Father. If there could be another way. If many roads could lead to heaven. If there's another way that people could find forgiveness for their sins, if there's another way that people could make peace with you, but Daddy, listen, please, I'm not sure if I want to go through with this. It may be more than I can handle, he possibly was thinking. But what we do know is he said, if there could be many ways, or at least another way than me going to the cross. But what's greater than him going before the Father and saying, hey, could it be another way? He said, not my will, but your will be done. A little side note we might write in our notes today is that we need to take notice that Jesus was obedient 100%, and he calls for us to live an obedient life as well. 1 Samuel 15, 22, it's a good ver uh, memory verse for you. To obey is better than sacrifice. Not only is that good for us, but it was what Jesus understood to be true. Remember, he didn't come, it says in the Gospels, to erase the law. He came to fulfill the law. That means he came to be 100% obedient to the law of God. So that his sacrifice would be the sacrifice 
for the sins of the world. A beautiful picture of his obedience and the cross simultaneously as Philippians 2 starting in verse 6 and going down to about verse 8 or 9. It says, Jesus, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and became a servant in human likeness. And he became obedient even to death on a cross. Not only does he model obedience, he's obedient to the Father so that you and I could come have our sins forgiven. Know what it means to walk with peace on the inside of our life, even when the outside of our life doesn't make a whole lot of sense because of the storms that are around us. Most of all, he came to pay the price so that we could have assurance when we leave this world, we would be with him in a real place called heaven. First discovery, his perspective on the cross. Second, his prayer concerning the cross. The third discovery we see in this passage is God's plan for the cross. Even though the Son of God cried out to Daddy God and asked, could there be another way? He submitted to the will and the Father laid it out based on what happened next that His plan would continue and His plan would prevail. And that plan would be the cross. How do we get that? Look at what it says in verses 41, 42 and the last part of 49. And he came a third time and said to them, he had prayed, he had prayed, and now he prayed and has gone back to his disciples and said, are you still sleeping and resting? Listen, it is enough. The hour has come. In other words, God's plan is getting ready to be unveiled. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man, that's a title he gave himself, is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. If you go down to verse 49, the last part reiterates that this is God's plan. For it says, this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. It is God's plan that Jesus would leave heaven to earth. That he would come by way of a virgin and then live a perfect life. That he would die a sacrificial death and be raised from the dead so that you could be forgiven. And so that I could be forgiven. So that you could know God. And so that I could know God. So that we could walk through this life knowing a peace that surpasses the human mind, Paul says about in Philippians 3. More than that, it was God's plan that Jesus would take care of what we could not. So that when we leave this world, and we will, and eternity is far longer than any years we would live if we put them all together. So that we could have the assurance that we would be with God in a real place called heaven. How do we get to heaven? There is only one way, and it's through the cross. Acts 4 and 12 says, There is no name under, no other name under heaven whereby man shall be saved. In context, back up a couple of verses. It's talking about the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, talks about the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. And after each one of those, Paul says, according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures. Paul is saying, this has always, is, and will always be God's plan for the redemption of people like you and me. There's only one way. There are not millions of ways. There are not two ways. There's only one way. And His name is Jesus. 
This was God's plan all along, and Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan. If we were to open the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies that refer to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Like where he was born, how he would be born, when he would die, how he would die. Over 300 plus prophecies that literally speak to the death, burial, that there's one way. If we turn over in the New Testament and we read through the New Testament, we can find the answer to every one of those prophecies or the fulfillment to every one of those prophecies. Some of those prophecies took place as many as seven or 800 years before it ever happened. And then later, Jesus would come on the scene and he would fulfill every single 300 plus prophecy concerning his death, burial, and resurrection and his coming. Peter Stoner, a mathematics and astronomy professor, before he went to be with the Lord, wrote a book called Science Speaks. And he said the probability of one person fulfilling just eight of those prophecies, not all 300 plus, he said that was improbable, period. He said the probability of one person fulfilling just eight of them was one and 10 to the 17th, times 10 to the 17th power. Now, I'm horrible with numbers. So one times 10 to the 17th power was like mind-boggling, blowing. I, I had no idea what it was. So I did a little research. It didn't clear it up for me at, at first, but I still did a little research. <laughs> it's called one in 100 quadrillion. Now you see why it didn't clear it up for me? Because I'd never heard of a, a quadrillion, much less 100 of those. So I did a little research on that. What is 100 quadrillion? Or what is a quadrillion or one in 100 quadrillion? So a quadrillion comes after there's a million. We talked about Oprah, there's a billion. We could look at our nation's debt maybe and there's trillions. Then you, you, you go after that and there's what's called quadrillion. So to have a quadrillion, you've got to have like trillions of trillions before you get to a quadrillion. And then when you get to a quadrillion, you've got to have a hundred quadrillions, which is mega amounts of trillions and billions and millions, right? So you've got to have all of that mathematically for the probability of one person fulfilling eight of those prophecies. Jesus didn't fulfill eight. He fulfilled all of them. Now, I know some of you are thinking like me. I'm not a math person. You're going, that still didn't help me a whole lot. I know it's like, let, let me give you a picture. So the state of Texas, from what I've learned, from, from traveling, uh, traveling from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina to Oceanside, California, about a five-day trip, half of the trip was just across Texas. No, seriously, I'm not exaggerating. Half of the drive was, was okay, some of you know, you've done it before. Half of the drive is just right across Texas, right? There's a day or two here, a day or two here, and then there's a few days here. I mean, it's just a long drive. It's just a big state. Uh, other than Alaska, I believe it's the largest landmass, at least in the continental, it's the largest landmass, but in all of the United States, it's the largest landmass, so I've been told. So here's what I say. What would one in 100 quadrillion of a chance look like? So it'd be like going to the state of Texas. Remember the silver dollars? I used to get them when I was a kid. I don't think they are in circulation a whole lot anymore. Some of the older ones have them buried in coffee cans out in the backyard probably with the rest of your money since you don't trust banks. But anyhow, the, the, uh, the, the silver dollar said take enough silver dollars to cover the whole state of Texas two feet deep. And one of those silver dollars, before the helicopter flies over and dumps all those silver dollars out, one of them has a red dot on the bottom. Put a little dot, put it in with all the rest of the silver dollars, and then fly and just drop it all over the state of Texas till it goes two feet deep. 
and then give an individual like you and me an entire lifetime to walk across Texas and go, oh, it's got to be right here, and then reach down, dig in those silver dollars, and pull the one up, flip it over, and there's a red dot on the bottom. That's the probability that one person would fulfill about eight of them. Please hear me on this. Based on the authority of God's word, Jesus fulfilled them all. And his resurrection is proof. 1 Corinthians 15, around verse 14, I believe Paul said, without the resurrection, our faith is invalid. It's useless. The resurrection proves it all. So much so that what would Jesus say to Oprah today? I'm convinced Jesus would say to Oprah and you and me, a word picture that we could all understand. He would say in life, and he does actually say this, by the way, Matthew 7, 13, and 14. He would say in life, there are only two roads. There's a wide one, and there's a narrow one. And he would say that the wide road leads to destruction, and that many find it. I did a word study on destruction years ago, and what it literally means is hell. There's a wide road, it leads to a real place called hell. And a lot of people find it. Remember Dr. Jeffers' research? Almost six out of every ten people that attend American evangelical churches are on this road still. Because they somehow have missed Jesus. I was there for 22 years. It can happen, right? It can happen. But then he says that there's a narrow road. And he says this narrow road leads to life. I also did a word study on life. It's heaven. This road leads to heaven. This road leads to an eternity in a real place called heaven, a real place called hell, a real place called heaven. I believe Jesus would also say to Oprah, to you, to me, to anybody who would listen, this is where we all start. The wages of sin is death. We're all born sinners. This is where we all start. And then he would say there's only one way to that road. And that one way, I'm convinced, based on the authority of Scripture, he would make clear that one way is the cross. There's only one way that sinful man, that's everyone, you and me included, that we could cross from the wide road that leads to a real place called hell to the narrow road that leads to a real place called heaven. And that one road is the cross. Jesus said it in his one word, in his words this way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Friend, I want to ask you before we close to consider the question. If the Lord chose to end the world today, would you spend eternity in a real place called heaven? Eternity is way too long to be wrong. This is something that we need to get right. This is fundamental. This is foundational. This is what we're all about. Without it, we're just a spiritual country club. So my question for you is the question the Lord Jesus would ask Oprah, and I believe he would ask you today as well. Have you come to the cross? Because this is God's plan for salvation. And if you've never done this, I would plead with you Get it right before you leave today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the promise of eternal life. 
Thank you for the Lord Jesus who made it possible. God, I pray for everybody that can hear my voice, whether they're in this room or around the world watching on the internet. If they've never fully resolved the answer to this question personally, how they would get to heaven, I pray today you would speak to their heart. And friend, wherever you are, if the Lord has touched you in a way that only He can, and you're sensing the need to ask God to forgive you and believe the only reason that He would is because of the cross, because of the Lord Jesus, I would ask you in the silence of your own heart, tell Him in a prayer. Tell Him something like this. Say, Dear God, please forgive me. Please change me. Please rearrange me. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus to do what I couldn't so that I could receive what I could never earn. Forgive me right now, please, and help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for spending time with our church family. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, visit us online at pcbc.tv. There you can also contact us and find out how to connect with us through social media channels. And visit pcbc.tv slash podcast to listen to additional messages from Putnam City Baptist Church.